On this episode of the Lectures in History podcast, the impact of internet and television on White House communications. Chapman University professor Lori Cox Hahn discusses the power of new technology on White House communication strategies. I'm Juan, and I'm part of the team that produces C-SPAN podcasts. As a listener, you can help us continue to produce our quality podcasts about history, books, and current events with a tax-deductible contribution to C-SPAN's nonprofit operations. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Thanks for listening. There's a lot going on in the political world today. Speaker of the House was just voted out. On the other side of Capitol Hill, California just got a new senator. The Supreme Court term started yesterday. A former president was put under gag order by a New York judge earlier today. The current president's son went into court and pleaded not guilty to criminal charges. But we're not going to talk about any of that today. What we are going to talk about, though, is the public presidency. And all of these other things speak directly to why public leadership from the president is so important, especially when all these kinds of issues are going on all over the place. So the public presidency is about a couple of things. It's about how do presidents communicate, to whom do they communicate, and why. So like I said, we're going to talk about the idea of public leadership and the symbolism associated with the office. And there are three main components that we're going to cover starting today and we're going to continue into next week. So we're doing two weeks on this topic. That's how important this is. And those three main components are a White House communication strategy, the presidential press relationship, and the president's connection to the public. And we measure that one usually in the form of public opinion. Now, to start us off, I want to do a case study on the public presidency of Barack Obama for a couple of reasons. I want to talk about this first. First of all, I just finished a paper and I presented it at a conference in April, the uh, Obama Presidency Conference at Hofstra University, on this very topic. And I took a macro-level view of the public aspects of the Obama presidency and looking at the lessons and legacy. And there's really a lot when you look at that case study of that president that explains so much about the public presidency and all these other facets that we're going to cover this week and next. And I think the Obama presidency really highlights, highlights all of the moving parts when we're talking about this aspect of the presidency. So when you think about Obama as a public leader, he was certainly a gifted speaker. He had a strong connection to voters out on the campaign trail. But the Obama presidency is also a really good example of how there's a disconnect between the skill set we look for in candidates versus the skill set that's necessary to successfully govern. That's not to say that Obama didn't have really strong moments of public leadership. He certainly did. But his presidency also shows all of the challenges in the public arena that presidents now face. He dealt with, he had to adapt to new and developing media technologies. There, it was a time of hyper-partisanship. There was certainly fragmentation of news, which makes speaking to the American public more difficult. The national audience has been shrinking in recent years. So that makes it more difficult for a president to speak to the public. And the the, the coverage that the Obama campaign got in 2008 and then 2012 
looked a lot different than the news coverage that he received while he was president. And the frustration with that was evident from all of his White House advisors and sometimes the president himself. And that, like I said, highlights that disconnect between running for president and actually being president. So what I like to start off with when I'm talking about the public aspects of the Obama presidency are looking at the start versus the finish. And two weeks ago when we were talking about the primary campaign season, I mentioned the speech that Obama gave the night that he won the Iowa caucuses in January 2008. And a lot of people say that one of his best speeches ever was actually at the 2004 Democratic Convention where John Kerry was nominated. He was the keynote speaker. He was running for the Senate. This was his introduction to a national audience. And this is that famous speech where he talked about, we're not a red America, we're not a blue America, we're the United States of America. That theme resonated with a lot of people, and it it resonated for him throughout his presidency. But actually, I think that the 2008 victory address that night in Iowa is one of his best speeches ever. It maybe wasn't the most polished, it wasn't the longest, but in that 20 or so minutes when he came out and acknowledged that he had upset the political world and won the Iowa caucuses, it was a strong message to everyone listening that there's change coming. You know, we think of Obama as hope and change. Those are the words we associate with his time in office. But that really started out on the campaign trail. And the energy and the enthusiasm and the electricity you could feel by watching that speech that night really had an impact on his campaign. Now, if you fast forward and compare that to his final State of the Union address in January 2016, this is you know near the end of his time in office, and if you actually watch one and then the other, which I've had students do before just to see the contrast, it's night and day. Because that speech was supposed to be talking about his legacy as president, talking about his policy accomplishments, a grand vision for where America went after his eight years in office. And instead, it was pretty combative. Some people said it was defensive. And you could see that the, that, that excitement, that energy that was there on the night in 2008 was gone eight years later because he had dealt with all of these challenges as president. And during his presidency, he went from winning a, a sizable victory on the night of or election night in 2008 and his party taking control, well, they already had control of the House and the Senate from 2006, but increasing that to a pretty good-sized majority that we hadn't seen in a long time. With independents caucusing with Senate Democrats, they had a 60-vote majority in the Senate. But by the 2010 midterms, Republicans had won the House, By the 2014 midterms, Republicans had won the Senate. So he went from united government to very divided government in a very difficult political environment. And so the message from the speech was just as divided in 2016. Democrats always loved his message. And especially some actually enjoyed how he basically looked at all the Republicans in the House chamber and said, you're the reason why I didn't get more done. You're the problem. In a way, it was the president saying to the other party during the State of the Union, F you. And that was, I mean, if you were watching it live, that's what you felt. And you could just feel the frustration, I think, for this president who was gifted in so many ways, but wasn't able to get as much done as a lot of people thought that he would. And that's one of the important parts of public leadership, the public expectation. 
If you would have told Obama supporters in January 2009 when he took office that that's how frustrated he would be at his last State of the Union, a lot of people probably wouldn't have believed you. But it is a really excellent example of the public expectation versus the reality of what presidents can do when they do get elected. So what does all this tell us then about the public presidency? We know that Obama's public strategy while he was in office reflected his skill set in terms of being a gifted speaker. People, some people have said he was born to eloquence, and he could certainly do that. But it also shows us that presidents have to adapt to the reality of the media and political environment in which they are attempting to govern. And so there's been a lot of academic attention to this topic of the public presidency, you know, dating back to the 1980s, a lot of different theories uh, about the role of the president as a public leader and whether or not they can really shape public opinion by the actions that they take as president. There was a recent book just a couple of years ago that was published that I think is one of the most important ones we've seen in a long time, and it's by my uh, colleagues Josh Shacko and Kevin Coe called Ubiquitous Presidency. And they talk about exactly what the title says. Ubiquitous means the president is everywhere. And that's true when you look at the media environment. And that certainly describes the Obama presidency in a lot of different ways. And they look at the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency, and there's a whole bunch of political science data in there, so a lot of my colleagues really love that. But I think the overall message of this book is really important, talking about where we're at in terms of what we as the public expect from the president and whether or not the president can actually deliver. So then what was Obama's overall strategy? It was about a combination of innovation and tradition. So presidents now, and Obama certainly did, have to figure out what will work for them in the current media environment. But presidents also build on the traditions that their predecessors set in terms of, you know, where do they go to give a speech? The traditions that we associate with the office of the president. There's an inaugural address, the State of the Union every year, major policy addresses, press conferences, those kinds of things. And the irony seems to be that presidents do these public activities more and more. Those numbers seem to be increasing in the traditional venues, and that happened during the Obama years, even though we know that fewer people are tuning in, and there's not a lot of political science research, at least, that shows that these events matter in terms of shaping public opinion. You know, the American public seems pretty dug in. Even those in the center basically say, I'm an independent, it's because I don't like what's going on in Washington. So how can a president then break through any of that? And I think a lot of people thought, well, if anybody could, it's Barack Obama. He's got all of these skills, you know, to to speak to people, to resonate with people, his historic presidency. But that really didn't happen for him either. One of the, the strategies they did rely on was that Obama was very good in non-traditional settings. So he could give a good big speech, that was no problem. But he could also do a lot of unique and what some people accuse him of doing for the wrong reasons and that it made him look unpresidential. So, for example, he was the first president to go on a daytime talk show. He went on The View, 2010. He had been on The View a couple times as a candidate, but he was the first president to do a daytime talk show, and there were political pundits that lost their minds over that. How could a president do something so unpresidential? 
This is so beneath the office of the presidency. Now, granted, this is 2010. So, um, and so there was this big debate about it. But from a pragmatic standpoint, why wouldn't he do a show like that that spoke to a very targeted audience and in a setting that he was very comfortable with and he was good at? So he did, you know, late night. He did, um, you know, he slow jammed the news with Jimmy Fallon. He did mean tweets with Jimmy Kimmel. Um, he would go on ESPN every March and fill out his bracket for, you know, the college basketball tournament. In 2009, he was uh, on the opening of Monday Night Football dur- during um, Hispanic, Hispanic Heritage Month. And, you know, he was everywhere. He did uh, Between Two Ferns uh, to promote Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, to younger Americans. And it actually increased the traffic to the website to get younger Americans signed up for health care. So these things worked for him. And he was known as the pop culture king. And so if I'm getting this right, I've got a mic up here, but I won't demonstrate. At the last White House Correspondents' Dinner, after he finished speaking, he basically said, Obama out and drop the mic. I mean, if that doesn't speak to the culture, I don't know what else does. And he was masterful at that. And yet there was a lot during his presidency that he couldn't get done. And the assumption sometimes is that even if the president's party isn't in control of Congress, if you're a good communicator and you can do all these things and you can resonate with the public, you can get even more done. But I think he proved the limits of that skill set and what that can get done for you. Another thing that the Obama White House did was they created digital programming um, beginning in 2010 called uh, uh, West Wing Week. And this was programming that went online every week and showed Obama behind the scenes in the White House. And the attempt was to show him in a more candid setting, more personal setting, and to show the American people, hey, this is what we do behind the scenes at the White House. The press corps really didn't like that so much. I mean, he didn't restrict press access per se, but he did all of these things, whether it was that or through social media, that he didn't need the press to do that. Obama also had a very strong presence on social media. You know, we think now we think social media, you know, Twitter, whatever you want to call it today, um, that was Trump's domain. And it was in a whole new way. But by the end of 2016, a lot of people assumed that Obama had really set a high bar for how a president would use social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, not only his personal accounts, but the at POTUS accounts that, you know, those still exist. And how would a president, you know, future president deal with this? Well, now we know. Trump used Twitter in, in a way that nobody really saw coming until he started using it that way on the campaign trail and continued doing it into and all through his White House years until he got banned from Twitter after January 6th. His account has been restated, but I think he's only used it once since to put out his mugshot. You know, he created his own social media platform. Um, when the White House now tweets, we can assume that's probably not Joe Biden personally tweeting. But while Trump kind of upended the use of social media, Biden, I think, is, I call it traditional use of it, and I know we haven't had it that long, but traditional use with just a bit of an edge. And I say that because Biden has so many surrogates now on social media to say things that the White House doesn't have to say. So you'll see people associated very closely with Biden, and they're tweeting about, or messaging, however you want to say that, about Dark Brandon. 
if you know what Dark Brandon is, then that you're tapped into this social media culture. And that gives it a little bit of an edge. And But I think we can assume that Biden's not the one at 3 a.m., you know, phone in hand, putting something out into the Twitter sphere. So how did we get to the point that the public aspect of the presidency was so important to begin with? It's easy for us to remember, even someone as old as I am, um, you can't imagine the presidency without this kind of media presence and this kind of connection to the public, but it wasn't always this way. And so just a little bit of the historical context then, the turn of the 20th century, really, things started to change when Teddy Roosevelt was president. He started to use the news media at the time, newspapers, magazines, to connect with the American public. Remember, we were talking about presidential power and presidential leadership. Teddy Roosevelt had this view of the presidency that we refer to as the stewardship doctrine. As long as he wasn't doing something completely unconstitutional, he was the steward of the people. And he took that very seriously. He also had a, a, a large personality, he had a large photographic family, and he started to use the press to his advantage so people would know who he was. The imagery started to matter. He was also a good public speaker, and so he earned that reputation of being able to go out and and rally Americans. Um, And so this, this shifted something about the president's relationship with the press and also the public because of that. Now, Again, getting back to some of the political research, political science research on this topic, there's a lot that's been written about what is usually called the rhetorical presidency. Some people think that this is a very important part of the office and a good thing. Some scholars think that this is a bad thing, and let me explain why. From the, if you're in the good category, you think, well, we have a deliberative democracy. And that means that the framers gave us a system of government that expects public participation, civic engagement. And... So for the president to speak more directly to the American public, that's actually a good thing. That's part of this constitutional design. For people who think that it's a bad thing, it's because the framers were also concerned about the president having too much popular power. They didn't want a demagogue in the office. And so some scholars in the 1980s started writing about how this was bad for our system of government. This was a constitutional aberration. The presidents were taking more power than they should have because they could speak to the American public in a way that no other politician could. Probably not the best day to use a Speaker of the House as an example, but as powerful as a Speaker of the House may be, that person doesn't have the bully pulpit access that a president does because the Speaker of the House represents their district and then their if they're in the majority party, that party in the House chamber. Nothing compares to the presidency. And so for some who are concerned about this, then their argument would be that this throws out of balance the checks and balances within the Constitution, the fact that we have three uh, equal branches of government. So that ideal is very hard to um, find. Now, as we move throughout the 20th century, the other important trend that we see is that changes in the media environment have definitely shaped opportunities for presidents regarding public leadership. So in your textbook, I break this down into three categories. There's the radio era, there's the television era, there's the digital era. So the radio era was really kicked off from with FDR's presidency. You know, he gave roughly 30 fireside chats. 
And this was such a significant way for him to communicate directly to the American public. Time, you know, the Great Depression, so much uncertainty and turmoil in this country. And the ability for a president to speak directly to Americans sitting in their living room, sitting around their radio, having that voice come into their living room was pretty significant and powerful. This became an important governing tool for FDR. Now, that doesn't mean the presidents who followed him were as successful, but it's one of the reasons why we think of FDR as a skilled communicator. Yet, based on our standards today, he might not become even close to that. But his skill set matched the technology that was available at the time. So when you get to the television age, this is really, you know, we credit John F. Kennedy with shaping so much about television's relationship with politics. Now, Television really came into its own in the 1950s while Dwight Eisenhower was president, but he really wasn't interested in using television to govern. So there would be, you know, the White House would allow the networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, to film Eisenhower if he was giving an address or um, during a press conference for them to play back later on the evening news. But he didn't really see the value of it. Kennedy gets elected in 1960. You know, we talked about the Kennedy-Nixon debates last week. Well, one, uh, Kennedy's press secretary, Pierre Salinger, really saw the value of using this medium for this particular president. And so early on, right as JFK is taking office, writes a very lengthy memo explaining this is how we use television to our advantage. I mean, Kennedy was young. He was 43, had a very young family. Jackie Kennedy was 31 when he entered the White House. They had two small children. John Jr. was six weeks old on Inauguration Day. So there was an opportunity for a lot of visuals that would resonate. And the Kennedys were so young compared to the Eisenhowers, so that was an advantage there, too. Kennedy had such a large family, and there was this um, you know, myth about the Kennedy family. I think it still exists for a lot of people. But this was good stuff in terms of media coverage. One of the things Kennedy was able to do was, well, first of all, he's the first president to hold live press conferences that are televised. And he was very good in the back and forth with reporters. He was friends with a lot of people in the press corps. But it was a pretty good show to tune in every two, three weeks to see the president over in the old executive office building. I think that's where it was. And holding court with members of the press. He was he could joke with them. He could make fun of himself sometimes. He had self-deprecating humor. But he was good at it. And this really showed the highlight of television. Now, after Kennedy, though... We go a long time before we see another president who's really good at this. We go all the way to 1980 with Reagan's election. And Reagan, you know, used media and television in, in a different way, but the technology had continued to expand. 1980s, it's, a, it's about, you know, the expansion of cable television, satellite technology. CNN is, at that point, the only cable network, but we're starting, by the end of the decade, to talk about a 24-hour news cycle. And Reagan was made for those kinds of settings. He was so good at giving a scripted address or remarks. He knew how to hit his mark on stage because he was a former actor. Before that, he was a radio announcer. So he was comfortable in front of the camera in a way. I'm not sure any other president, or certainly before him, had been. And then the other two presidents I would highlight at being skilled in this area are Bill Clinton in the 1990s. With, you know, we always talk about new media in the 90s. I know you'll all roll your eyes at that, but believe it or not, back then there was a lot of media technology innovation going on. 
And Clinton was really good at finding ways to go around the White House press corps. He would do um, a lot of regional, local media. He would do um, a lot of like satellite kind of town halls where he would might be in the White House, but he'd link into a gathering out in the community. And he, you know, they started to, his, his administration really started to use the expanding uh, media alternatives. So I, I've done, I'm working on a, a new book on how the state of the news media shapes White House communication strategies. And the Clinton chapter, I have a lot of this already done, um, is called Amplifying the Message. This was something, when you look at the documents in the Clinton Library on this topic, in the Office of Communication, the press office, the common theme was we have to amplify the message. And that meant that they're going to find new ways to promote the president because the traditional national media wasn't having the same power that it used to have. Actually, this morning, and this, this tells you something about how the, by the end of the 1980s, the media environment is definitely changing. Um, you know, on Twitter, I follow all of the presidential libraries. That shouldn't surprise you. Um, and this morning, the George H.W. Bush Library tweeted about, in 1989, on October 3rd, there's a photo of President Bush in the White House, and he's getting ready to do a Q&A um, for Sports Illustrated Kids. Now... Do you think that was the most important thing on the president's schedule that day when you think about all the other things the president has to do? Probably not. But from a PR standpoint, it seemed pretty important for the White House communications team to get him into that small venue. And that's just an example of how the strategies have shifted so much, and it has to match the medium. So by the time we get into the digital age... Barack Obama, you know, certainly set the standard for a lot of this. I'm not sure we'll ever see a president who resonates with the American public in terms of pop culture the way Obama did. You know, I could be wrong, but he set a high bar. Reagan set a high bar. Clinton set a high bar. Kennedy, FDR, they all set a high bar. So then what happens to all the presidents who really aren't good at this stuff? And, you know, you can look at George W. Bush as an example. Um, so he wasn't known as he wasn't didn't have a label like Reagan did as the great communicator but he did have a skill set it just wasn't necessarily on the national stage but he also proved that you can maybe not be the best communicator but for all sorts of reasons, you can still get reelected. Because when you look at some of the presidents who weren't necessarily skilled in this area, there are a lot of some one-term presidents. George H.W. Bush, for example. Um, before him, Jimmy Carter. Uh, you know, so there were times when it felt like the news media was using presidents, but they couldn't use it as effectively themselves to win re-election or to govern. But George W. Bush won re-election in 2004. And he he had a couple of seminal moments in terms of public leadership right after 9-11. And I would say that his best speech ever was probably his address to the nation right after 9-11 while he was in the National Cathedral in Washington. That's, that's a very traditional, unfortunately untraditional because of 9-11, but that was considered more of a traditional venue for a president to speak out, especially in a time of tragedy. And then followed by a very non-traditional setting, which was the iconic image of him at Ground Zero with the, the air fire chief. 
with the bullhorn in his hand, his arm around, you know, halfway around the fire chief. That image is just iconic about 9-11 and the role George W. Bush played in the days after in terms of public leadership. And it's not surprising that, you know, he hit 91% approval rating, which then plummeted down below 40% later on in his presidency. But, and we'll talk about that in next week when we talk about public opinion. But if you want to see a president in a setting where you know they're not particularly comfortable and counting the minutes until it ends, watch a press conference with George W. Bush. That was not his preferred venue. Yet, outside of those kinds of settings, he is very personable. And I think I, I've given you this example that after he left the White House, right before um, the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, right before Jay Leno retired from the Tonight Show, he and his wife, Laura, went on the show and they were great. They were funny. They were personable. And a lot of people were saying, well, how come we didn't see this when he was president? Well, it's because in part the, the White House team didn't think that was where they wanted their president to be. And one of the strengths of Bush's communication skills and I've said that before and I've had people kind of roll their eyes, but one of the strengths of his presidency in terms of this is that his staff understood his strengths and his weaknesses. There are some traditional venues you can't skip. If you don't want to do a press conference, that's fine, but you're probably going to get blowback from the press from it. But that doesn't mean you have to do one every other week. But his team really understood who he was, where he could excel. And that's one of the most important things about a White House communication strategy. You have to have a team that knows you, understands you, and understands the media environment that you're, you're working in. But that's not necessarily always easy to put together. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about White House communication strategies. This is a topic I've been studying ever since graduate school. I wrote my dissertation on this topic, it, it's, you know, which I then revised into my first book so long ago. And I, you know, I finished graduate school in 1997. Yes, it was that long ago. And a lot has changed, not only in terms of the scholarship on this topic, but and, and the methods, you know, the availability of documents. There was nothing online when I was reading all of these speeches and public comments for my dissertation. Boy, that would have made my life easier. But the media technology is so different now, too. And so think about how dramatically that changes and how presidents and their teams have to keep up with this. That's one of the biggest challenges in terms of the public presidency. But when we're talking about a White House communication strategy, there are several factors that come into play. There's the leadership style of the president and presidential rhetoric and speech writing. You know, speeches just don't magically appear. Someone has to write them. And presidential public activities. So when the president does the State of the Union or goes out and gives a major policy address or um, a, rose a rose garden signing ceremony, signing a bill, vetoing a bill, signing an executive order, you know, those are, are now media moments. Or interviews. The, you know, presidents do a lot of interviews, some on camera, some not. Sometimes they'll bring in, you know, um, a team from a particular news organization, you know, some of the editors from the Wall Street Journal will get, you know, half an hour with the president or, you know, a couple of me top media sources like New York Times, LA Times, legacy media and social media, new media. So um, there's a lot of interaction working with the press. And from the standpoint of a White House communication strategy, think output. This is the message that the White House puts out there. 
the feedback comes from press coverage and also public opinion. So those three components of the public presidency, communication strategy, presidential press relationship, and public opinion. The first one is about output. What is the White House saying? What is the president saying? And believe it or not, it matters where presidents say things, the setting that they are in. Think of the complete package. You know, like I said about Obama, it's, you know, looking at how all the moving parts work together. And there's a lot that goes into creating a presidential or White House communication strategy. Um, And what's the president trying to sell through this? If you think of it from the standpoint of there's a message that's being put out there. Is this about a policy agenda? Yes, that should be the, the ultimate goal. But it's also about advisors promoting and selling the president as an individual. So when we're talking about, you know, what's going on if President Biden does a speech, think about all that went into that. And then I want you to think about all the reaction after it. And what is the goal for the White House? If President Biden, and he's given a couple recently, if he goes out and gives a speech, or he goes to Michigan and goes out on the picket line with auto workers who are out on strike, what is the goal there? Who's the audience? And that's where the strategy comes in. So if President Biden's giving a speech today, who do you think is the audience? I'll, I'll kick it to you for a minute. So who is the president speaking to? We're, yeah, we're definitely well within the presidential election cycle. So we can assume that the president is speaking to voters or maybe partisans. He's speaking to Democrats saying, hey, I'm going to be, you know, I want to be your nominee again. And come November 2024, I want you to vote for me and everybody who has a D behind their name. Yeah. Who else? Yeah. Swing voters. As we've talked about, there are more independent vo- independent voters are the plurality. There are people who might lean Democratic but are not registered Democrats or not automatic. So, yeah, that message needs to be crafted to them as well. Like last week when we talked about the general election, you know, it's not always easy to focus on the base of your party in the primaries and then shift to a more centrist message when you're the nominee. And so it, it's even tougher when you're the incumbent president. Because he's got a dual audience there. You can assume that, you know, he wants all Americans to listen to what he has to say, but we know that's not how what happened, actually happens. How many people do you think actually watch it live? Or if you want to watch the president give a speech live, where do you even go to see that? And that might differ based on generation. I mean, how many of you would flip on your TV and, and you know, scroll through the cable channels and go to ABC News? You're all looking at me like I've lost my mind. Because your generation doesn't do that. Or maybe you go to cable news. And there are all sorts of ways you can get cable news. You can just get it on your phone now. You don't even have to be in in front of a TV. Um, There are all sorts of different screens where we can access this. You can get it on social media. There are so many ways to get it. But how do we know that when, you know, if you're on the communication team for President Biden, how do you know anybody's even paying attention? And who's your target audience? you should probably assume that it's not going to have a huge audience. The State of the Union doesn't even have a huge audience compared to what it used to have. But you take those moments and you try to shape the news, you know, the news of the day. And you hope that it's more positive than negative. But then again, 
is there a clear connection to what we watch on the news versus how we vote? We can make the assumption that that's the case. We can make the assumption that news media coverage of the president shapes, shapes public opinion. But nobody in my field has been able to prove it with beyond a shadow of a doubt. So some of these things we know that presidents are just expected to do. I mean, what are some of the things that you expect a president to do on, you know, on the public stage? You know, my first book was called Governing from Center Stage. And that's really what presidents do. But how they do it now versus, you know, all those years ago when I wrote that is very different. Yet there's some traditional things that remain. So what's the public expectation for presidential performance in terms of public activities? Yeah, we have a strong expectation for presidents to be able to get a lot of stuff done as soon as they get in office. FDR gave us that, you know, that expectation, the first 100 days. And, you know, I think we talked about how the media still likes that frame framing of the first 100 days, but it's not realistic for presidents anymore. Completely different, um, you know, to say it's completely different political and media environment for FDR compared to presidents now is an understatement. But there is an expectation that presidents will get things done. So where do we expect to see presidents? What are traditional venues then? I mean, what if the, a president decided not to give a State of the Union address? Good idea, bad idea. Probably from a strategic standpoint, bad idea, even if you were a president who doesn't particularly perform well in this setting, um, because the public expectation is so high. Imagine the news media coverage. If next January, Biden said, yeah, I don't want to do a State of the Union. Of course, he's presumably going to be um, the, presumpt well, the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party. So that would be crazy not to take that setting. But that audience is a lot smaller. And what comes out of the State of the Union um, tends to be just kind of filtered through the hyperpartisan media environment that we're in. Have you ever listened to a State of the Union and came away a more informed voter? I'm not saying it's impossible, but why do people watch the State of the Union? Yeah, the drama. Political theater. That's an important term I want you to understand for this week and next while we're talking about these events. Well, we talked a little bit about it last week with presidential debates. It's political theater. And how does the news media cover the State of the Union? Yeah, Rob. Point, see Sometimes, which parties yeah. uh, are responsive and not. I would like to note the one in 2008 when you had that one representative from South Carolina stand up and say to Obama, you lie. Yeah. The news media went crazy about it. And he so, was a congressman from um, South Carolina. Yeah. And Joe Wilson, that was his name. And it's actually 2009. So Obama, and it was his, he was addressing a joint, uh, addressed a joint session of Congress. Uh, that summer when, and he was talking about the Affordable Care Act, yet to be named Obamacare, but that would come soon after. And, you know, so Joe Wilson yells, you lie through the chamber during this. You know, and that compared to what we've seen in some state of the unions recently or some public venues seems pretty tame, but it was shocking at the time. You know, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House, and, you know, I know she wanted to gavel him out, which means, you know, you're, you're done, you can't say anything more. And it made headlines for a couple of days. You know, the, the shout her name or whatever, you know, the anchors call it at the time. Um, but we've seen a lot more drama and a lot more political theater since then. But the State of the Union is a perfect setting to do this kind of political theater. 
because it still gets the highest audience, though, you know, apparently now all you have to do is have Taylor Swift show up at, you know, Sunday Night Football and that breaks records. Um, You know, nothing compares to, say, the Super Bowl or apparently now Taylor Swift. Uh, But for the State of the Union, this is an opportunity for the president to lay out their agenda. And it's, you know, a primetime address. Every news media outlet covers it and everybody's talking about it. And do you see a theme in coverage of politics that looks a lot like coverage of sports? Because if you've ever seen that, you're not imagining it because it's, it's something I refer to as the ESPN effect of politics, meaning that if you turn on the example I usually give, you turn on ESPN, you, you watch a show like Sports Center, and then you flip over to cable news, you see some similarities not only in how it looks, but the way they analyze things. So if anybody watched Monday Night Football last night, there's the coverage that leads up to it, the game, and then all the coverage after it. You know, you spend will talk for hours about a Monday night game. Imagine then what it's like, the, the coverage of the Super Bowl. When does coverage of the Super Bowl start? Well, there's two weeks between the national championships and the Super Bowl. So that's a whole big time period for every sports reporter, every media outlet to hype this game and and analyze every single aspect of it until you're to the point that even if your team is in the Super Bowl, you're just like, just kick the ball already. Just kick it off. Let's get this started. Um, And then after the Super Bowl, another couple of days of analysis. You know, who won, who lost, you know, what does this mean for free agency for this team and all, all the other stuff. And you don't have to be a sports fan to understand where I'm going with this, so it's okay. If you look at coverage of the State of the Union, it looks very similar because coverage starts like a week or two before the White House has got a whole strategy in place to have circuits go talk about what's going to be in the speech. There's usually an embargoed copy of the speech that's released that, you know, the media outlets get it. They just can't report on it until the speech actually begins. The speech happens and there, there's a little bit of theater in, in State of the Union addresses now couple of things. One, a tradition that Ronald Reagan started was to have somebody up in the gallery, an average American, if you will, or someone he wanted to highlight, to point to, tell a personal story, and that personalized the address. Presidents do that now. That's an expectation. Who the president has sitting in the gallery, sometimes next to the first lady, is an important indication of what the president wants the media to focus on. Because that's probably going to be a better story than the, the laundry list of policy he's going to provide in the address. Because if you look at the content of State of the Union, this is not the most exciting stuff because it's a compilation of a lot of different departments and a lot of different advisors and a lot of different politicians getting to weigh in on what becomes the president's policy priority. And who is the president speaking to during the State of the Union? Is he speaking to his party? Is he speaking to... um, the opposition sitting in front of him. Think about all the other officials that are there, most of the cabinet, most of the Supreme Court. Who is the president speaking to? Is, you know, and over the, you know, say last year was President Biden speaking to the entire nation. Well, he's speaking to whoever was tuning in or maybe who was going to watch it later. But how many people sit through the start to the finish? I mean, I usually do because this is what I teach. But it's not always the most exciting thing when you're just listening to what the president has to say. The, also the, the theater of it also comes with the who is going to clap when. You know, there's the, there's the, the ceremonial part of 
the sergeant of arms saying, you know, Mr. Speaker, the president of the United States, the president walks in and shakes everybody's hand and applause, applause, applause. And then steps to the podium and more applause. It's like so much applause that night. But then throughout the speech, there are certain times that the president's party will applaud and the opposite party just sits there on their hands. Sometimes maybe the president will say something to that will, you know, encourage the opposite party and they'll, they'll applaud and his own party won't. Um, and a president has to know when to expect those applause lines. This is George W. Bush wasn't always good at anticipating when to, you know, pause for that. Um, but this is a very controlled environment. Presidents tend to do okay during a state, a state of the Union. President Trump's first State of the Union, he actually performed incredibly well to the point that afterwards, a lot of, you know, some of his biggest partisan opponents went on cable news and said, wow, he just had a very presidential moment. Now, I don't remember the exact reason, but then what Trump would do, he would step all over it immediately with a tweet or saying something off, you know, off color, all the things that Trump would do. But he performed well. He stayed on script for that first State of the Union. And, um, you know, when you have people saying to Trump that he looked presidential, that should tell you how well he performed. But that was an isolated incident. But think about the symbolism of the State of the Union. Getting back to my question, is there a president who you could who you could see saying, yeah, I don't want to do that? And not every president did State of the Unions. So by the time jo Thomas Jefferson becomes president, he decided he wanted to do that because the Constitution says you just have to send a report on the State of the Union, a State of the Union message. No requirement that it be a speech. And oh, it was either 1970 or 1971. Um, Richard Nixon actually did a series of radio addresses instead of State of the Union. And, but since then, we expect the president. But I, what I want you to think about it is, from a strategic standpoint, what does the White House get out of an event like this? It's like the ultimate bully pulpit. Of he course. He gets to lay out his entire vision with no one... It's just him for an hour and a half. Yeah. And the ideal scenario there is the president outlines the policy agenda, tries to get everybody on board with it, and tries to move the country forward on all these important issues. But what tends to happen instead is that there's a lot of theater that's part of it. And then the media coverage afterwards, do you think they're focusing on the substance of the speech? Do you think they're really analyzing some of the policy proposals? Uh, what does the media pay attention to then after that? What are some of the storylines that tend to come? Yeah. It's like why did you fight in saying that? Um, he's also like making accusations of not fulfilling his duties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think to the last State of the Union address. Was there a bit of a lack of decorum in the House chamber for that? I mean, if you're disruptive during the State of the Union address, that means you have a strategy, too. And you're trying to appeal to your base. I mean, the president can try. And here's the point. The president can try to speak to the nation, but it's in a media environment that does not support that strategy anymore. But if you are a, you know, member of the House who wants to get a lot of attention on social media or wants to be invited, in this case, you know, to go talk on Fox News or Newsmax or, you know, if you're a if you're one of the people who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy today and you want media attention, um, actually those who didn't, but um, 
you know, you know, there's a way to do it because our fragmented media system will allow you to have your niche audience out there and speak directly to your supporters. But have we, the point is, have we lost the ability for the president to speak in a substantive way to the American public and have us all appreciate it for having substance? And one of the, you know, questions I always raise when I teach media and politics, but it's relevant for this class too. If we think there's something broken within our media system and how we cover politics, and if we think there's something broken within politics in terms of how they respond, who's to blame? Is it the news media for the way they cover politics or is it our fault as consumers because we continue to buy into it? And why I want you to think about that is that's the environment that a president has to face. And so how do you go about breaking through that to get your message out there and have it resonate? And the other thing about whether it's the State of the Union address or numerous other aspects, the media coverage tends to be more about the horse race of politics. That's true during the campaign. You know, some of the things that get the most coverage are who's winning, who's losing in the delegate count, who's raising more money, what are public opinion polling say? That, that all ties in with momentum, as we talked about last week and the week before. But how the news media cover politics in general is still about that. It's about who's winning and who's losing, who's ahead, who's behind. And when you put it in that kind of a game frame or sports frame, that's problematic for, you know, if we want to go back to this ideal of a deliberative democracy. You know, there has to be a winner and loser in a presidential election or any election. But there's really not a winner or loser in that sense when we're talking about policies that the president is trying to work with Congress to pass for the American people. And so that thing, I think that puts us at a disadvantage in terms of just how we connect with our politicians, but particularly how we connect with our president. So how, how would you rate Joe Biden's public presidency? I just got a thumbs down. <laughs> Not that I disagree with that, but yeah. Well, especially yeah, as like someone who like, you know, personally support him supportive of a lot of what he thinks. I'm finding myself very frustrated by it. I think he doesn't, um, he deliberately stays away from the media, which I understand, mm -hmm. but I think that there needs to be more just communication. I would like him, basically, I just like him to speak more to, to me. Right. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people feel that way because I mean, there are a lot of reasons why Joe Biden was elected in 2020. The fact that he is, was going to knock it out of the park in there, I just did a sports reference myself, in terms of the public presidency, was not one of them, right? Um, with Joe Biden, you kind of knew what you were going to get because he had been around so long. And you basically had um, a very long track record of his public gaffes. A lot of people overlooked that. But now at his age, then there are a couple of challenges that his communication team has to deal with, right? So if you were on the White House communication team right now, what would be the advice you would give? behind or has as few interactions or with uh, or as few speech speeches out in front of the public as much as possible because uh, as you mentioned he's frequently prone to gaffes and so 
I think what they've been doing instead of that to supplement that is they've uh, used the POTUS and Biden's social media accounts to promote uh, some of his ideas and policy initiatives. I know that uh, Biden's announcement for 2024 candidacy was on Instagram and on social media. He didn't give an actual speech. It was yeah. announced via... And, and there are pros and cons to that, social. right? I mean, when you look at Biden as president and now, you know, as a presidential candidate, you can look at a lot of factors and say, maybe that's the way to go because we can control it more. Um, if you think to why did the Obama White House do the West Wing week feature? Because they were in complete control over that. So from a strategy standpoint, the White House always wants to control the narrative, wants to control the message. It's just that they can until it gets out there. But then they have no control over how it's interpreted and how people kind of, you know, see it once it gets filtered through the news media. Yeah. I'm not sure if you saw it, but the White House launched this new messaging platform where Joe Biden was saved in your contacts and his picture was mm-hmm. even there and it tries to appeal to like Gen Z. Yeah. And it's so funny because it's like, hi there, how are you? This is my new platform. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very interesting how they're trying to use that strategy to appeal to younger voters. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants the vote of everyone your age right now. And this is a, it's a tricky demographic when you look at how skilled you all are with social media and versus, you know, an 80, almost 81 year old president trying to communicate to you on that level. You know, this, the strategy seems to be now, and this was something that the Obama White House talked about is that you know, we have to meet the public where they are in terms of how they use technology. But that's so different versus when you look at all the different generations. You know, I, I will concede, you all know so much more about social media and technology than I ever will. Um, so imagine if you are an 80 plus year old politician trying to communicate to the most important block of voters that you need to keep you in office. You have to have advisors who understand this. And you know, so when you think about how quickly technology changes, when you're putting together the your comms team, that's a really important factor. You have to have people who understand this. So where do you find these people? More than likely, they're people that have worked for you before, worked on your campaign, and they know you, or they're people who've worked in the news industry and can bring that insight into your team. It's not surprising to see people from the news media take this kind of position, and then when they leave, they go back to the news media. So a White House press secretary, for example. So uh, Jen Psaki was Biden's first press secretary. She now has a show on MSNBC. So, you know, there's kind of a revolving door there for a lot of uh, some of these communication team, both the press office and the communication office advisors. But are there venues, if you were advising Joe Biden right now, are there venues you wouldn't want him to be in? And yeah, so Robert, when you're talking about how he launched his campaign, yeah, that might make sense. Yeah, a lot of like candidates go yeah. to um, like the state fairs. Yeah. I feel like he would be really likely to not only like physically slip up, like, trip over like somebody and in his defense as the incumbent president that that creates a different strategy if you're running for re-election right but yeah i mean where is what is a good venue for joe biden right now somewhere maybe something place kind of like intimate like maybe he goes to like on like an ice cream store because he already loves everyone knows he has ice cream how many pictures have you seen of joe biden buying ice cream (laughs) 
And, you know, how many do we need to see? Well, someone on his communication team thinks this is a good image for us. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, that that goes into the, the process of how you how do you want to showcase the president? And when you have someone like Joe Biden, it's not as easy as when you have someone like Barack Obama. Right. Was there a bad venue for for President Obama? Can you think of anything that he didn't excel at in terms of the public aspects? Because I've got one. Because you think of Obama as being very skilled, right? He didn't he didn't misspeak during a State of the Union, um, you know, despite what people thought about whether or not it was un- unpresidential for him to go on The View. Uh, I think that that, you know, that has shifted. Our perception of that has shifted a bit because a lot of people recognize that he was a smart politician in doing that. But there was one setting that he seemed to struggle with. And if you look at all of the public events he did during his presidency, the one that he didn't do very often was an address from the Oval Office sitting behind the desk. So can you picture presidents, you know, over the years, even if it was before you were born, a president sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office, all the photos of their family, the first lady behind them, addressing the nation. This is the one venue that Obama struggled with. He gave his first address from the Oval Office in the spring of 2010 during the BP oil spill in the Gulf. And there were, you know, there was a live camera on cable news feeds showing just constantly the oil gushing into the water. Talk about a bad optic if you're the president, even though you're not to blame for that. It comes back to the agencies within the executive branch that, that failed and let this happen. So he gives an address from sitting behind the desk. He was so awkward. He didn't know what to do with his hands, his arms. You could tell this was not a good setting for him. I mean, I always equate it to if you put a desk here and had me sit behind it to teach, I'd probably be awkward too because I'm not used to sitting while I teach. He wasn't used to sitting while he was giving a a speech. And it was the kind of thing where studying this, I was a little distracted from just his awkwardness. And I don't know how many other people picked up on it. I know I did. And compared to, you know, his other addresses where one of the, the most prominent moments of his presidency was when he, you know, in the east wing of the White House, walked down that hallway with the red carpet and the big gold doors and announced to the American public that uh, Osama bin Laden had just been killed. That was a very powerful moment of his presidency. And that was a venue where he was very comfortable and you could tell how important it was. But he did another address from the Oval Office uh, in 2016, early on in that last year, I, I have to go check the date, either late 2015 or early 2016. And to try to compensate for his awkwardness, his team brought in a podium with the presidential seal and put it in front of the desk in the Oval Office and had him stand behind it. So I was watching this live with my son, who was in high school at the time, and we were watching it together. And, you know, my son shushed me. <laughs> while we were watching it because I was just so caught off guard by what the team had done. And I, you know, my comments were like, what are they doing? Why did they bring that podium? That looks ridiculous. That's never been done. You know, why are they doing this? And literally my mom, my son said, mom, shut up. I can't hear what the president's saying. But for those of us who study this, you could see it just wasn't a venue he was comfortable in. And it was striking because there really wasn't any other public venue that he didn't master. But it was this one thing that seemed a little awkward. And that's an example of the strategy. Now, I doubt very many people caught onto that or really cared beyond someone who studies it as much um, as as I do and some of my colleagues do. But that's a really good example of how strategy plays into it. 
So imagine the conversation, you know, I don't know if Obama said, hey, I don't want to sit behind the desk or one of his advisors said, that's probably not the best place for you to be, which is probably not an easy thing to say to a president, quite frankly, that, hey, you suck at that. We're going to have you do this instead. That's not really something that you want to say to the president of the United States. But if you were on the communication team, these are the things, you, it's the little stuff that matters. So you have to think of, you know, what the stage is going to look like, what the microphone is going to be like, what the camera angle is, what the lighting is going to be, how's this going to look on cable news, are we getting enough coverage on social media, you know, can we get something the president says to go viral for all the right reasons. These are all of the strategic things that go into this. So how important then is this to, to circle back to the overall topic of the public presidency and public leadership? I mean, can you think of some moments that I haven't already mentioned that stand out to you as important public moments for a president? What comes to mind? Yeah, Annalise. Um, when, I guess like the moments of like recognition and then Bill Yeah. I think it was a wife, and I don't know if his daughter was behind him. It's like the idea of, like, family. Well, 1998 was all about um, the inappropriate relationship he had with the White House intern, the investigations that ensued, and then culminating in his, impeach in his impeachment. Um, you know, there's the famous shot, and this is for all the wrong reasons. There's an event in the White House that morning. I'm forgetting which room it was in. It was like, it was a Hillary Clinton event, you know, room full of cameras and other people at the White House and Bill Clinton steps up to the podium and gives his famous line of, sorry, you know, I can't do a Bill Clinton voice, but I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. And, you know, he, he basically said to the world, all these stories are false. Turned out he was lying. And then I think August, I might be a little off on my timeline, but he has to go back on national television and speak to the nation and say, in fact, I did have an inappropriate relationship and admitted that he lied. And then some of the iconic imagery that comes after is that he and Hillary and Chelsea leave for their vacation at Martha's Vineyard. And there's the picture of them, Chelsea Clinton, like holding on to dear life to each of her parents' hands, the three of them walking out to, you know, Marine One to take them on their vacation. And that's very powerful imagery. And, you know, but probably some presidents have a key moment where their words are very powerful for the nation. I mean, that was all about politics and his indiscretion. But from a more positive standpoint, a president can be, you know, the some, some people refer to it as the healer in chief. Because when something bad happens, we look to the president. So George W. Bush's example from 9-11 that I gave, that's an example for him. For Bill Clinton, it was when he spoke after the Oklahoma City bombing in April 1995. Because a lot of people were saying that his presidency was in trouble. In 1994, Republicans won the House and the Senate for the first time in 40 years. A lot of people were saying, oh, Bill Clinton, you know, his approval ratings were really low. And people were saying, you know, he's going to be one-term president. In the wake of that tragedy, he had a very important rhetorical moment that helped to turn things around because he was very good in that setting. 
we've talked about how empathetic he is as a politician. And the remarks he gave at that memorial service in 1995 were the, na- the nation was just in shock over what had happened with the bombing, and especially the number of people who had been killed, the number of small children who were killed in that bombing. And he spoke in a way that, you know, elevated him as the president, as the only one who could speak to the nation and use the bully pulpit in a very, very powerful way. So those are moments that we think of, or a similar moment for uh, Ronald Reagan. I think two of his, you know, if you think of great moments of, of Ronald Reagan, which I know none of you were alive then, but if you could remember some of the, you know, you've probably seen clips of Ronald Reagan. What comes to mind? Tear down this wall. Right. So in 1987, and if, if you've read that chapter in your book, you know that um, not all of his advisors wanted him to say that. And Colin Powell was one of the ones kind of arguing against it. Maybe you don't want to say that, Mr. President, but that was a, that was like a Reagan-esque moment, right? And that's one of the things he's known for, um, for that kind of powerful rhetoric during the Cold War. Two other really important moments he had. In 1984, at the, um, the D-Day Memorial, he gave a very powerful address that brought a lot of people to tears. Um, and also when the Challenger exploded in 1986, the, um, you know, and, and the, the astronauts died, we, it, we watched it live on television. He gave very powerful remarks after that. And Reagan didn't write his own speeches. Some presidents are very active in writing their own speeches, you know, Kennedy, Clinton, Obama. But Reagan had a very skilled team of speechwriters who knew him and understood his voice his language and the things that he wanted to say. And when you look at a couple of Reagan's best speeches, that really comes out. Uh, one of his best speech writers um, is uh, Peggy Noonan, and she's written about this, but, you know, to be a, the kind of wordsmith she was, came from her ability to understand the president for whom she was writing. And so when we talk about all of the strategy, it, you know, there are a lot of people who are behind the scenes creating, helping to create this image of the president. And speechwriters are a very important part of that. And so there are those iconic moments that we think of when a president speaks to the nation. But I want you to think from a strategic standpoint that that's the end result. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that went into getting to that moment. And I think every presidential team would like to have those kind of iconic moments. But notice I'm not talking about every single president since FDR, because some of them never really had those kind of positive iconic moments you know we if you think of Gerald Ford even today you know it's how Saturday Night Live in its infancy made fun of Gerald Ford for being a klutz because he falls down the steps of Air Force One he trips you know he was an athlete he played college football he you know he was an avid skier golfer I mean he really wasn't that kind of a klutz, but the news media was able to portray it that way. And then, like we talked about with Sarah Palin, if you if you are the subject of Saturday Night Live, that that is going to give you an awful lot of public attention and maybe not in the way that you want. So these are the things that, you know, all of this goes into developing a White House communication strategy. Because once the president says something, gives a speech, whatever it is is happening, even if it's just walking from, you know, Marine One back into the White House, there's no control over what the news media will cover. So the goal of the White House communication strategy is to control as much as possible. So again, I will we'll wrap up just with words of advice to President Biden as he goes forward in terms of 
his his public presidency, or is this stuff already set in stone and there's not much that, that Biden can do at this point to change the public perception of him? Yeah. I think for young voters, it's a little hard, especially because every single thing he seems to be doing, for one, it seems like he's getting it for votes and not because he wants to. Yeah. To like, he's trying to appeal for the voters, but it's not really working. And in fact, it's actually harming his viewpoint. Sometimes that, that coverage, you, you have no control of it. You have no control over the public perception. And so, yeah, sometimes you think you've got a great strategy and it will backfire on you. So, I feel like at this moment, we're just living in such an unprecedented time. And there's so many things going on that have never happened before in American history that we... There really isn't much he can do at this moment. He kind of just has to smile and wave and hope for the best. But I mean, yeah. I, mean, I don't really think there's any much he can do at this point. Because remember what I said that now, well, and, and Trump is the exception. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about Trump um, over the next two weeks. Um, and he, he would be a fascinating case study in and of itself, you know, like Obama was. But he would be for different reasons because it was so unprecedented. Um, and, you know, we're still saying we're in uncharted territory. Well, we certainly were with, with Trump in terms of his communication strategy. Um, but there are certain things that a president just cannot control. and But you have to – your communication strategy is supposed to be about – a combination of tradition and innovation. You can't just ignore all the stuff that the public expects you to do, but you have to show that you're innovating, innovative and you know how to communicate in the media environment that you inherit the day you take office. And so for me, like I said, this is a really fascinating subject for me in my own research because I don't think we clearly understand yet the depths to which the news media as an industry shapes the opportunities that the president has. Because a, a president can be a very skilled communicator, but if they don't have a team that really understands how to navigate that media environment, then maybe they're not you know, using their skill to the best advantage. But the fact that we're even talking about this topic should show how presidential leadership has evolved. You know, we, we, we talked... We spent a whole week talking about presidential leadership and, and the qualities that, you know, are associated with this topic and what presidents need to do. And only one of them was communication. But yet, you know, the president is ubiquitous now. And the news media may, has made that happen. And, and, and actually mass media, the, the bigger picture, not just the news media. So there's a lot to consider when we're talking about a White House communication strategy. And there's a whole lot of room to fail and it's not often that we see presidents actually succeed. But if the goal is to shape public opinion and move public opinion forward, we don't see a lot of evidence of that happening, at least in the ideal way that I think presidents would prefer. So any last questions before we wrap it up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you think by chance if Biden, let's say, goes to a college to get young voters, do you think there'll be, like, chance a whole, like, maybe better his, like, viewership? And, like, For him to reach out to Chambers? I don't know. Why don't you tell me? If Joe Biden came to Chapman University to try to, I mean, I, picture that in your mind. <laughs> Is that a good strategy? He's not a really good speaker, unfortunately. And I feel like going back to the social media, I watch his speeches on social media. And, like, let's say he doesn't do his speech, like, in person. Like, yeah. how do how do I know as like a young like voter that like a social media intern is doing that instead of him? Exactly. And if he came to our campus, that any president that comes to campus, it's always a big deal. But um, you know, 
everybody on this campus would certainly be tuned in and excited about it. But how many people around the country would would care at that point? Or what kind of news media coverage would it get? In Southern California, we'd get a lot of coverage. But nationally, I'm not sure it would be that big of an event because in some ways the president has become, for a lot of people, just another talking head, just another news clip, you know, and just another uh, uh, quick video you can access on social media or just one more, you know, thing that can be on a constant loop on, on cable news. If it's CNN or MSNBC and the president says something they like right now, then they'll highlight that. On Fox News, it might be the same clip but in a completely different frame and so it's hard to break through that and try to you know for the for the strategy to try to get that message directly to the american public but presidents will continue to try they're not reducing their efforts to go public they're they just seem to be increasing them so okay i think that's everything i wanted to cover today so on Thursday, we're going to talk more specifically about the presidential press relationship. And we're also going to talk a little bit more about um, Obama's relationship with the press and Trump's relationship with the press. So I will see you on Thursday. Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash ahtv.